Abuse in the halls of power and influence. From preachers to politicians, institutions, NGOs, business, media, entertainment, and inside the church. The behavior by some leaders in position of power who lose their moral compasses erodes the trust of many people who once embraced them and leaves a devastating trail of pain and destruction. In fact, Time Magazine reports that the year 2020 ushered in an epidemic of misinformation and widespread mistrust of societal institutions and leaders around the world. How do we heal? Today on the program, two brave women share their stories of abuse when people in their churches fell silent. And critical thinker and educator Richard Landau talks pop, power, and cancel culture. Former Ravi Zacharias employee Daniel Gilman sounds the alarm within the church on the urgent need to listen to women who come forward. But first, Maggie John with Dr. Serene Jones, president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City on the Silence is Not Spiritual Movement. Serene Jones, thank you for being here. First, let's talk about the news of Beth Moore's stunning departure from the Southern Baptist Convention. How did you respond to the news? Well, I was not surprised by it. The Southern Baptist Convention uh, has a long history of losing some of its best women uh, because it will not permit them to hold uh, space in the pulpit, the most treasured position in the church. So it's not surprising. Um, and I know she will go on to continue to speak and have a long career and her voice needs to be heard. Beth Moore is a big presence within the Southern Baptist Convention. Do you, do you think they're going to learn some valuable lessons through this? Um, you would hope so, but there's many other Beth Moores out there who over the last 20 years who have left and it has not shifted. But we can only hope and pray that it does begin to shift the conversation because she is such a major voice in the Southern Baptist Convention. What's the church's role in protecting survivors of sexual abuse and stopping it before it happens? Well, the role of the church in uh, protecting and stopping it before it happens uh, should be huge. Um, in fact, we should be looking in churches um, at the theology that's preached, at the scriptures that are used, at all aspects of theology that would either um, promote um, or justify uh, the power of a minister or the leader to such an extent that they feel empowered to um, take advantage of and abuse uh, members of the congregation. Um, but we also need to address the issue of silence. Um, silence is not okay. That knowledge of misconduct needs to be immediately called out and you are held responsible for the knowledge you have. This is not something that's all right to be quiet about. I agree with you. I mean, I think silence is a, a big issue in the church today, especially when it comes to sexual abuse. Have you seen the culture change any since the Me Too and the silence is not spiritual and the church too movements of just a couple of years ago? Um, yes, I've seen um, a lot of movement. Um, it is now increasingly a topic that people are willing to uh, speak about. Uh, I've particularly seen movement in the evangelical world where evangelical pastors, which previously um, had sort of complete immunity around these issues are now being challenged by their churches, by their congregations, uh, when uh, they uh, um, do sexual abuse or uh, overstep the boundaries of their position 
um, in any way that's inappropriate with parishioners and they're being held accountable. So yes, I, I think it's tremendous. How can the church be more active? You know, we talk about just acknowledging and uh, not being silent, but how can we actively protect vulnerable, vulnerable people within our communities, within our society? Well, I know that very many denominations in the United States um, have uh, mandatory training um, for all clergy and all leaders around sexual misconduct um, and sexual abuse. I know that our seminary and many seminaries in the United States uh, require um, misconduct and abuse training before people can graduate with their Masters of Divinity and become ministers. It needs to get incorporated into our curriculum at every level so um, that there's knowledge about what happened and there's knowledge about how to address it. And finally, last question, what are your thoughts about the sexual abuse allegations that have come forth about Ravi Zacharias? Oh, they're just horrifying, uh, very disturbing. Um, I'm sad to say though that every time I hear these, I'm, I'm horrified and disturbed and yet it's some part of me, I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. uh, that is very often in our culture, the biggest personalities and the people with the most power and the most unquestioned power um, that use that power to take advantage of others and use their power uh, to uh, abuse and uh, deeply damage and harm others. Talk to me about the importance of women in the church and the voice of women in the church and why we need to be reminded of that. Well, basically the church is women. If you look globally, 80% mm -hmm. of the people who make up the churches, Christian churches in the world are women. Uh, they run the churches, they clean the churches, they do the cooking in the churches, they run the offices in the churches. Um, they are the people who are filling the pews, they're at the Bible studies. And the fact that this mass number of voices and devoted lives are ignored when it comes to leadership is a devastating failure of faith at its very core. Um, women should be stepping up to lead and stepping up to lead with the full force of the Lord behind their voice. Yeah and the support of the church behind them as well. For years, the name Ravi Zacharias was synonymous with apologetics, defending the word of God in front of millions of people. But when Lorianne's allegations of sexual abuse came out in 2017, some people wondered if it could be true. But after a lawsuit and a signed NDA non-disclosure agreement, the allegations were quietly forgotten by the general public and many who worked closely with Ravi but not by the victims. Last year, after Zacharias's death, more sexual abuse victims came forward with allegations. After an investigation ordered by Ravi's organization, it was found that he indeed had sexually abused women over a number of years in different countries around the world. A devastating outcome for Ravi's family, his staff, board, and millions of followers. I sat down with a former employee and apologist at RZIM Canada, Daniel Gilman. We spoke for over an hour about the culture at RZIM, lessons learned, and why he is now committed to advocating for victims of abuse. Here is part of that conversation. So Daniel, the last time I saw you, we were at an event run mm -hmm. by the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries of which you worked for, and it was mm -hmm. called, uh, What's a Woman Worth? Mm -hmm. And uh, the irony that we're sitting here almost exactly a yeah. year later uh, in this situation, a lot has happened since then, a hasn't it? A lot has happened since then. Yeah. Yeah. When you joined the team at RZIM, had the allegations from Lorianne Thompson already come about? Yeah, and it's something that has been um, 
just really painful um, that I've had to acknowledge and reckon with. And Why? I've, because um, be the allegations were already out there. Um, she had already been able to share a little bit of her story, quite silenced because of the NDA against her, but she was able to share a little bit. And uh, I remember I was not at all part of our at the time. I was a huge fan of Ravi's. And I, I saw this headline from Christianity Today. And I thought, no, like we've lost so many legends to scandals. Please, not Ravi. He's, he seems so wholesome. So I looked at it and found that I found his narrative and was so relieved to find, okay, it's all good. This isn't the case. And I just went on with my life. And a bit after that, I got the call saying they're interested in me. And I happily joined the team. But in that process of them vetting me, I got a call from an Ottawa area pastor. Mm. I was in Ottawa at the time. And he said, Daniel, there's these serious allegations against Ravi. If you look at the evidence, you can see it's likely true. And you should really look into this and not join the team. And uh, I thanked him for calling me. Uh, we all need friends who can say the things we don't want to hear. So I, I said that to him. Hey, like, don't be shy around me. I'm glad you're asked, telling me stuff that I would find hard to hear. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't actually, I just, yeah, I forgot about it. Looking back now, Daniel, what are some lessons that you have learned about the culture, the office culture mm -hmm. that was at RZIM? Because I, I don't think, and we've seen, uh, that this is not just an RZIM issue. They, as you've alluded to, there are so many other cases within the church and outside of the church of where you just don't question the person mm -hmm. at the helm. Like every single one of us can find ourselves um, not living up to our own convictions. And I think that those who are able to maintain their wholesomeness, that they are people who are safe, that they're not people who are abusive or toxic, will always only ever be people who people can ask them like really tough questions and hold them accountable. Um, one of the books that I, I turned to and helped me work through some of this stuff is a book by the former CEO of Dunkin' Donuts. He wrote the book Challenge Culture, and he writes about how he helped foster a really healthy culture at Dunkin' Donuts, uh, where uh, anybody was able to ask any question about the way they were doing things or the conduct of even him, the CEO. It's a huge, it's bigger than ours, a huge corporation. And reading that book, it was so hard on my heart because I was like, this is so much more wholesome than what I experienced at ours at AM. Uh, that kind of that that type of challenge culture is not there, and to be honest, I don't think it is in a lot of churches. When I hear uh, beloved pastor friends of mine say pastoral ministry is lonely, mm. like church is supposed to be a community, and so if the pastor is lonely, then it means that he must be somewhat above or removed from the community, and when we're isolated, we become more toxic. So. You were let go by mm -hmm. RZIM earlier this year. Yeah. Um, and you, I mean, when I met you, I think you were already doing advocacy work. But even more now, you are serious about advocating for abuse survivors. Mm -hmm. Tell me why you are taking this on even more head on and, and the importance, especially, of a man speaking into this sphere. Yeah, so I've just, I'm just starting as a victim's advocate with the Whitestone Clinic. And I'm going to get to speak to companies, churches, individuals, whoever wants to listen to me. I'm going to talk with them about how to be, um, make our, our communities, our companies, and ourselves safer people, more wholesome, more victim-centered. Um, one of the reasons I, I want to, I'm doing this is that when I've looked back at the past bunch of months and seen, like, I'm grateful 
that I finally stopped um, ignoring Laurie Ann Thompson's voice and was one of the ones at RZM who got to speak up for women and try to help the ministry really hear them. About one out of every three girls in Canada is sexually abused by their 18th birthday. That, that stat, one of every three, doesn't include all who've been abused after they turned 18. Uh, the, the amount of people in Canada who have been sexually abused, both girls and guys, is astronomically heartbreaking. And those numbers are true just as much within the church as outside of the church. I think every single one of us needs to take the time to learn to be equipped and to be part of the solution. People, a colleague cha uh, said to me, like, Daniel, I'm, I'm glad you're speaking up. I'm not going to speak up. I'm glad you're speaking up. Um, you're speaking up and because like, you're specifically called to advocate for victims. And I said, no, I'm not speaking up because I'm called to advocate for victims. I'm speaking up because cause it's, it's the human thing. Like, I'm, I don't just mean the humane thing. I mean every human being, every girl, every guy has a responsibility to love our neighbor. And uh, our neighbors are being sexually abused. Our, our, our wives, our daughters, our, our brothers, our, like the amount of men and women, boys and girls, who are suffering abuse and, and even abuse at the hands of, of pastors or speakers like a rabbi. Like, we need... We need to become informed. We need to be part of the solution. To our Susan Ponting now and a talk with critical thinker, teacher, and journalist Richard Landau on the state of pop culture and our quick actions and reactions to everything going on in our society. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable. Richard, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Why does power corrupt people? I think it's because people think that the acquisition of power is the main objective. They don't realize that power is like a tool. Same thing as with money. Power is a tool. It's a tool to achieve things for others. If it's wielded or used properly, it's about getting vaccines to people. It's about building roads. It's about building schools. That, that's where power is at its best. People with power in relationships, for example, completely misunderstand its appropriate use. Real power, real power, it seems to me, is when you're so good at what you do that others want to come and work with you and serve you. That's real power, not lording it over people. Mm -hmm. But when you evince such strengths and wisdom that people want to come and join your, 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 your team. And so why do you think people seek power and influence, even influencers in, on social media. You were just talking about the Grammys. Uh, we were talking about the Governor General. We were talking about uh, everyone from Epstein to Como. Some people, I think, not, not everybody, but some people have like a hole inside themselves. And the adulation, and I'll use that word, the adulation that comes with power to them is such an important thing. Maybe somewhere in their childhood they, they weren't respected or loved properly and they're trying to fill a hole yeah. with this adulation. So they completely misunderstand that that's not what it's about. You know when you join a religious community, you willingly give up a part of your freedom to something that makes sense of your life. So people will do that, but they don't realize that's, that's what, the, what it is. It's not about 
you're not, you're not, you weren't given the divine right of kings. Yes. <laughs> so then the scandals as of late, what do you make of them? Well, a lot of it originates with the internet where people, where the truth goes to die, so to speak, where opinion is treated like it's fact and fact is treated like it's opinion. Right. So conspiracy theories are suddenly have validity. We find ourselves debating flat earthers. And real science gets lost. So there's a bit of that to it. Also, there's a swarm. Uh, I went on the internet and made a comment after uh, the, the interview with Oprah Winfrey, uh, with Megan and, and Harry, and about the race of their, their, their child. And I said, we need to know what was actually said before we can just jump in and say racism. Because, you know, let's say you have blue eyes and your spouse has brown eyes and you're gonna have a child. You'll say to each other, I wonder what color the child's eyes are gonna be. You do that. That doesn't necessarily make it racism. Right. But okay, so let's talk about that. You said uh, your views on cancel culture are very interesting. Okay, so we get in trouble for a Dr. Seuss book and people start criticizing things and commenting on things when they don't look at the initial intention of the author. And the other thing is when we learn this in literary criticism, you can't take today's mores and values and apply them to something that's hundreds of years old. You can't do that. Yes. Uh, you have to look at the thing in its own context. And the other thing is, Everything is either good or bad. It's not that way. For example, I don't happen to agree with the politics of Bertolt Brecht or Yevgeny Yevtushenko. They're both communist-inspired writers, but I can read them and go, my goodness, it's brilliant writing. So, yes. it, it, not so you everything compare, is good or bad. So you compare this day and age, though, to another golden calf. Well, yeah, I, I feel can that. Can you expand on that? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's. I look at some of the behavior, like, the, for example, we talk about the performance at the Grammy Awards this year. Um, and it is like people are amusing themselves to death or they don't know what they're doing and they're bereft of leadership, bereft of a moral focus, a moral core, a moral center. And people think they know what is ethical and honest behavior, but without at their core some ethical standard, whether it's a religious belief, religious standards or, or you know, Ten Commandments, whatever, they're making it up as they go along. So basically you also say that there's no two sides can be discussed anymore. It's one side or the other. Well, it's, it's an like agenda, if you will. Everybody suddenly is being hoisted on the petard. And even, even Cuomo, for example, at the moment, it's accusations. Right. I mean, we have a standard for by, by which we say something's actual fact or not. Now I know where there's smoke, there's fire. I get that. When a story breaks, there's always a hunger for more information right away. This is a perfectly natural instinct, but it sometimes causes deep misunderstandings because scraps of news get overshadowed by a rush to judgment, by a pre-baked narrative. And there's a risk that the narrative is the only thing that's remembered, instead of the truth that emerges slowly over time. But by the same token, we've got to be a little slower to judge. And the kind of talk I see from the anonymity of the internet, the anonymity, people will say things in social media that they would not normally say, and they can get away with it. And so what does the Bible say about all of this, this current culture, Richard? Well, the funny thing is, you know, it's like the what reality, I think in, in four different places in each of the gospels where Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Who am I? Who do they say I am? And the, 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 the mass, the masses don't determine what's true. It's not the mass, that's the golden calf. It's the mass doesn't determine what's true. Amen. Who determines what's true is truth is truth. Amen. You know, and it's not relative truth, it's truth. But when suddenly I could make a comment on the internet, like, well, we need to find out if, if this woman says that they were racist about her baby, 
we need to look at that and ask ourselves, is it racist? I teach critical thinking. And critical thinking says, let's look at the facts. But you, the, some days people will not let you look at the facts. And they, we, they take a word and they beat it to death like race. Everything's racist now. Everyone's a racist. Yeah. And the thing, the thing is, there's a true, there's a true meaning to racism that, that gets lost. I belonged to a group once, it was a family violence committee, and a man showed up and said, it's, you need to discuss violence against men. It's really important. And he got very, very upset. And they're all looking at me, and I, I looked at him, and I said, well, quite frankly, there may be a problem in certain individual cases, but to focus equally and say that violence against men is the same as violence against women is to trivialize or, or to minimize what is violence against women. We, you, you have to put these things in perspective. Each yes. thing has to be looked at and carefully examined. So it's not the same. Thank we lack that discernment. Yes, we do. Discernment is everything. Thank you, Richard. My pleasure. Like to watch more Context Beyond the Headlines? Catch up on any of our shows online. On YouTube, search Context Beyond the Headlines for the most up-to-date episodes and extended content. Listen on the go with Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Check out our reporters' and producers' stories at our website, context.show. Follow us on Instagram at Context Beyond the Headlines and Twitter at Context TV. There are so many ways to put more context into your life. As the Me Too movement in 2018 exploded, a Church Too movement emerged as thousands of women came forward with accounts of sexual abuse that took place, some in the halls of churches around the world, some accusing church leadership of silencing victims. As we heard off the top of the show with Dr. Serene Jones of Union Seminary, popular Bible study teacher Beth Moore recently stood up to advocate for the many voices that need to be heard. Autumn Miles is also an advocate. She's a speaker, an author, and a domestic abuse survivor. She is one of the brave women who is sharing her story. Thanks so much, Autumn, for joining us today. What an honor. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, what do you think about the continued culture of power and influence that continues to try to silence the voices of sex abuse survivors in the church? Well, um, it needs to stop. Um, I'm, I'm committing my life to being a voice to representing the one in four women and one in seven men that, that experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Um, the church is not immune, as we've seen in the last couple of years. Unfortunately, that's just when the issue became we became aware of the issue, but it's been going on for centuries. Um, so it's not okay. And we need to stop it. It grieves my heart, Autumn, to know that leadership in the church was not a safe place to go. So you are now advocating for the church to be a safe place. What needs to happen for the church to be safe? Well, let me tell you, um, I, I wrote 10 steps that's on my website, autumnmiles.com, that any church leader can go to. And it is a guide for you from someone that has been there, been treated badly, and come out on the other side. There are 10 simple things that if anyone was to, if any church was to follow these 10 specific things, their church would be considered a safe haven for domestic violence victims. The problem is I did a study with LifeWay a few years back, 98% of Protestant pastors 
assumed their church was a safe haven. However, 63% of pastors had no plan in place in order to protect domestic violence victims if they were to come forward. And if you know anything about someone that's been abused, um, a domestic violence victim will not come forward due to safety reasons for her and her children, unless she knows that the source she is coming to can be trusted. Can you highlight just a few of those tips and we'll put your website uh, on our website as well so people can go and see those 10 tips, but what are maybe two or three of those tips that you can highlight right now very quickly? One thing I will tell you that all churches need to do is pastors and leadership must speak out about that heinous sin and even crime of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Once a pastor from the pulpit says, it is not welcome here, they, they think it's a small thing, but actually it is signaling the victim that they have an ally in that church. That is one simple yet profound, huge game-changing thing that any church could do. The second thing I would say, and there's 10 of them and they're all good. The second thing I would say is when a victim comes forward, you as a pastor or leader need to understand it took uh, an amazing amount of courage for her to come forward and say something. She is risking her life. She is risking her children's lives. So when she comes forward, believe her and take the appropriate actions such as calling the police and getting her into a safe shelter. Oh, so good. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much, Autumn, <laughs> for using your voice and staying in the church and believing that this place that we love could be redeemed and could be a safe place for survivors. Thank you again, Autumn Miles, for your time today. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. What an honor. We are now joined by Mary DeMuth, author of We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis. Thank you so much, Mary, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, as a, an abuse survivor yourself and a Christian, how does it feel when you keep hearing these allegations of prominent leaders in the church committing sexual abuse? It is very disconcerting and discouraging, but I am really encouraged that some of these things are being brought to the light. And um, so when those disclosures happen, I'm actually, instead of getting discouraged, I'm choosing to be encouraged because it means that it's out there now. Mm. That's, that's a good perspective. You, you say um, the church has minimized the evil of abuse. You help church leaders create safe havens for sexual abuse survivors. Why is this important to you and how do you start? Right, so growing up um, after I became a Christian and started going to church, I never heard any sermons about sexual abuse. I thought I was a freak, I thought I was weird. And so one of the things that I love to do now is to encourage churches to actually talk about this openly, and that helps people not feel alone. So that's part of creating a safe space besides having good policies and procedures in place for um, children and things like that. Mm. And, and last question, accountability. Uh, you know, in the number of cases that I've heard, um, accountability was missing when it came to uh, some of the perpetrators not having people around them to hold them accountable for what they were doing. How important is that, especially in the church? 
I think we need to get rid of this weird celebrity culture that's happening in the church where a great big leader surrounds himself or herself by yes people who never challenge. This has to change. We need to flatten uh, the leadership structures of our organizations and we need to have accountability on every single level and no one is above approach or question. All right, Mary Demuth, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Calvin Mazik, Director of Context. Each week our team tackles news headlines that affect us all. Our producers go beyond those headlines where we find God in action. But we could not produce this program without you, our viewers and our donors. If you'd like to find out how you can support the show, visit us at crossroads.ca forward slash context. We'll see you next week and every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. right here on YesTV. TV.